The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. With his final full-length novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, D.H. Lawrence ignited a firestorm that raged long after his death. The book is most damnable. United States Senator Reed Smoot fulminated from the floors of Congress. It is written by a man with a diseased mind and a soul so black that he would obscure even the darkness of hell. Exclamation mark. Although the author was no longer with us, the book stood trial in countries around the world. In Japan, the ordeal lasted throughout most of the 1950s. In America, the book was banned for 30 years. Plainly, said Susan Sontag, the United States is at a very elementary stage of sexual maturity. Canada finally found the book not obscene in 1960, Australia allowed it in 1965, and Britain allowed it in 1959, starting the sexual revolution, according to the poet Philip Larkin, famously, which according to him began in 1963, between the end of the Chatterley Band and the Beatles' first LP, which was rather too late for me, with me being the poet Philip Larkin. And yet the book has power. It travels all the way to India in this case, where our guest, Saikat Majumdar, discovered something in its pages. He's a novelist, and he admires the book as a novelist can. We talked to Saikat about his life and his works and his technical appreciation of Lady Chatterley's lover today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Lady Chatterley's Lover. What do we admire about that book? Maybe it's the courage and the frankness. In his usual style, D.H. Lawrence takes an essentially Victorian approach to writing novels, but imports a lot of radical thinking on sex, on politics, on class, on what it's like to be one human being crashing into another. He's not a modernist in the Joycean or Wolfian sense, not exactly, but his ideas put him out of reach of, let's say, Austin and Dickens, too. Chatterley tells the story of a woman, Lady Chatterley, who's married to a man injured in the Great War and paralyzed from the waist down. She falls for the gamekeeper. Her body needs him, needs sex. Love is a bodily function as well as something that appeals to the mind. And there are some explicit passages in the book. Lawrence himself was in some explicit relationships, some stormy ones, and there was a real-life story that may have helped to inspire the main plot, not involving Lawrence, Lady Adeline Violet Anne Morell, the English 
aristocrat and society hostess, was a friend of Lawrence's, along with lots of other literary and artistic types like T.S. Eliot and Aldous Huxley, many others. She was from the upper crust, the daughter of some double-barreled military types, including her father, Lieutenant or Lieutenant General Arthur Cavendish Bentinck and Baroness Bolsover. Her great-great-uncle was none other than the Duke of Wellington, who defeated Napoleon and was the British Prime Minister twice. She, Lady Morell had her own conquests with friendships like Virginia Woolf and W.B. Yeats and the painter Augustus John, and some famous lovers too, Augustus John probably among them. She was married to a member of Parliament, but the two of them had an open marriage, which she used to full effect. Having affairs with a doctor, the philosopher Bertrand Russell, and some others that are rumored, like Augustus John and art historian Roger Fry, for example, and the artist Cora Carrington. And briefly, as she aged, she took up with a handsome young gardener named Lionel. She was a striking figure and a huge patron of the arts, as well as being active in liberal politics, including uh, expressing some strong pacifist ideals. She appeared as a character in many novels of the day, including those by Huxley, Graham Greene, and Alan Bennett, plus a short story by Catherine Mansfield. Lawrence appears to have written about her twice, once in Women in Love and again as Lady Chatterley. So, it's a book that's almost a hundred years old, a classic work, famous by title, but maybe not as read as some other books from the era. What does a novelist, an Indian novelist, who has lived in the United States but now lives in India, what does that person take from it? What does it do? What does the book do that can inspire him. We will talk to novelist Saikat Majumdar, the author of several novels, and who has his own interesting life story to tell us about, to find out how Lady Chatterley's lover fits in after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Shoykat Majumdar, an Indian novelist, critic, and professor 
who teaches English and creative writing at Ashoka University, just north of New Delhi. He joins us today to discuss his novels, including his most recent work, The Middle Finger, and his love for the book Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Professor Majumdar, welcome to the History of Literature. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you, Jackie. Okay, so let's start with you. I read that you were born in Kolkata, India. What was your childhood like? Uh, yeah, I, I have to say that I can't be too romantic about my childhood. It, it was pretty difficult. I mean, I think it, the overarching, the defining event would be my parents' separation and eventual divorce. So it was not a happy childhood. I mean, I, I enjoyed school. I loved books. But I was, uh, I think the home front was quite traumatic. I think it was, you know, this was 1980s in India. The divorces were, you know, I was growing up quite, quite uncommon and uh, I think, you know, it, it came, happened a lot because my mother had what was seen as a unusual profession. She was an actress. Mm. Um, and um, I think that led to friction, you know, conservative family. And it was, it was, I mean, I think it had a lot to do with my growth as a writer and the kind of trauma, but kind of watching uh, my mother act and at the same time, see the kind of prejudices. So it was quite difficult. It was quite, you know, traumatic. I was a shy child. I think as home children from these kind of homes often try turn out to be fairly shy. And that also accounted for, you know, my love for books. Obviously, this was before the internet. We actually also didn't have a television at home we, for whatever reasons, even though my mother was active, we didn't have it. Everything was very chaotic. <laughs> so books were a constant companion. So I definitely, you know, that uh, became, you know, an important thing. And um, I, I mean, I guess childhood is, has become very important for me as a time. Even as a writer, I keep going back to childhood uh, in my novels. And I think there's a primitive sense of, you know, both fear and excitement, you know, where you don't really understand the experience that is hitting you, but it's very powerful. And I, I once had a, uh, had a meeting with a um, Vietnamese-American novelist, Fei Mei Nong, author of Bone, and she told me something very remarkable. The first five years in life is all you need as a novelist. And I think that has been quite um, important. So, yeah, to, to basically you know, go back to your question, it is memorable in many ways but not unfortunately in happy ways yeah how old were you when your parents separated uh i was um i think they were living separately probably yeah i think i was 10 or 12 at the time and it, uh, so it was fairly young and, and even before that the time they were together it was you know quite difficult what did your father do my father had a job in a pharmaceutical company he had a degree in science yeah he was a um, very interesting person, very good looking, very popular, very charming. But uh, now on hindsight, I'd say not a very strong person, not a very person who had a very strong will or determination. So, you know, I um, I mean, they actually married on their own. Uh, my parents, you know, this was early 70s. And, and it was unusual even then because most people would kind of families would arrange for it. So it was very romantic in many ways. But it was also very explosive. I think they had a very romantic and a very explosive marriage. Uh, my consciousness, my memory is more about the explosive part. My father was a very nice person, um, but uh, he also had an interest in the arts. He liked singing. He liked sports. But I think they were not very stable personalities. So that uh, led to 
a lot of difficulties. Yeah. I feel like we could jump right to Lady Chatterley's Lover and D.H. Lords at this point, but I'm so interested in your background and I want to talk about your books first. So we'll maybe save that. But I, I could definitely draw a line from everything you've just said to your choice of that book. But let me ask what kind of books you were reading and whether this was, were you using them to escape the unhappiness or were you finding books to be kind of the most trustworthy companions in your childhood? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely, they were safe. And I think I've actually written about this in, in an essay for LitHub. I think the most defining formative experience was, for me, my mother's life as an actress. Mm. And, um, and I grew up with a very strange same sense of both pride and shame around theater, because obviously I saw my mother's public life. But at the same time, the kind of taboos that an actress faces, that her moral character is questionable and all that. And, and many of that, at least, the, sort of the, forms the first part of my novel, The Firebird. You know, it is quite autobiographical in setting. It was published in the U.S. as Playhouse. Uh, the second half is more more fictitious, quite imagined, but the first half is drawn. And what happened was, I think I drew a fear of performance. You know, I, I, I think the very early on, I wanted to be an actor. Looking at this acting room, this kind of explosive thing, I realized that books are very safe. Books are, it's a kind of a turning away from physical performativity to literature, which was quieter, which is, you know, you can hide, you can read, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be visible. It's not like painting or music or performance or any of those. It's, it's something you can do quietly. And I think I needed an art form I could do quietly. And also something which forms, you know, you've been studying, your books are scattered, and then you hide a novel or a book of poems. Nobody notices anything. And I think that's kind of been my life. I kind of grew up with that. So definitely, I I, I was reading a lot. I used to read a lot in, in Bangla and Bengali, my native language, a lot in English, both. I think it's throughout school. Uh, the English books I read would be a lot of Victorian fiction, a lot of... Um, and then, of course, you know, I think after, you know, in high school, I discovered the modernists, and they were obviously... a kind of a opening up after the stability of Victorian fiction. And uh, that, I think, again, shaped me crucially as a writer and as a reader. I eventually did a doctorate in literature and I wrote on modernism. So I, that was the trajectory. But I think the defining event was this kind of traumatic relationship with performance, a kind of a shyness with my body. And I think to have that, I took refuge in books, which was very invisible, very quiet. And I think that has define me also because that's also probably why I write prose because I think poetry has a kind of embodied nature and I hide from that even today. I, I found performance much later while teaching and I enjoy that. In a small group setting, it's sort of controlled and it's it's not, you're not headed for big celebrity or people kind of misusing you in a way. It's it's more, it's an atmosphere that's, you know. Not in that way, but I've taught large classes too. And I think from there, my the performance you need to do as a writer, you know, literary festivals, mm, you know, mm -hmm. book readings, you know, that actually works well because I think because I've been teaching also that. So in a way, I want to say I rediscovered performance to teaching. And as you know, these days, a writer also has to perform. You know, obviously, we are talking right now. It's a right, podcast. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, and that inspiration came back to me through teaching. But for the longest time, I think I was very traumatized about my physical being, my, um, and that I think goes back to my relationship to my mother's life at stage. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned prejudice. Is this prejudice against the profession of acting or for women acting in particular, or was it something specific to your mother? I think it was about women in acting because uh, it was, um, 
you know 80s 90s i think now not so much so though obviously you know obviously as you know women in performance they're commodified in a way uh, that is true forever i think when the harvey weinstein scandal broke out yeah. in the us I, i kind of went back to that moment like oh my god this never gets over does it women in performance are always subjected to and i remember this i think in calcutta the theater tradition actually goes back in the 19th century to the red light area you know back then when the theater performed for Uh, directly started no respectable middle class women would actually appear in public so the the women from the red light district who are actually more like courtesans they're not really prostitutes they're very highly trained they're very sophisticated and i think in a way uh, the city has never lost the memory of women performers who came from that space so even when they're very leftist radical marxist theater very educated women there's always this question and even the lifestyle like what does a woman do when she's all dressed up and going out at 6 in the evening you know only one kind of woman goes out you know you know in the evening dressed up yeah. and uh, why is she coming back so late she's hanging out with all these men and i think you know in a more conservative family these things are an issue and it so happened that at that time there was a communist government in in bengal and the communist government was very much into moral policing you know what people are doing what women are doing and i think i remember the climate of claustrophobic climate of mistrust mm. and um, and i think all of that i think different families of course responded differently there were probably more enlightened families less enlightened families but i remember a lot of the friction was about this and i took away from it a very intense relationship with this art form of theater it still evokes very strong emotions in me i am not an actor i don't write plays but in a way my turning away to the novel is a kind of a turning away to a kind of a seclusion and solitude which felt safe from the openness of theater did you blame your mother's acting for your parents separation did you make that connection when you were a child not then you know as a child you don't think of these things you 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 don't understand you, you know you we think about these things much later there are many other things as well you know i mean this dissolution of a marriage and so many other factors i think my father had some problems with alcoholism too some substance so there were all m- many different kinds of factors yeah but um, i did feel that you know this is a very seedy world this is a very seedy world this is a very unreliable world people exploit each other and i think in a way as i said i wanted to be an actor and my mother was like oh definitely you're not doing anything this sorry you're going to be you're going to be you're going to study and you're going to be respectable and you're not going to do any of this stuff and i and i, I said okay i'm i'm definitely going away from all of that but i did have this very primal memories of visiting my mother in the green room and watching her in fact one of my earliest memories was as a 5 year old boy uh, watching my mother die in a play in an open air theater and this actually forms the opening scene of my novel five of house where a boy is watching his mother die and he thinks she's really dying so that terrifying fear i later when i was teaching at stanford i told a colleague that you know i had this horrifying memory of my mother dying and the fear i don't think has ever left me and she told me that you know i think you have a novel there and that really got me that this feeling <laughs> could actually be the seed of a novel yeah and um, you know that uh, definitely you know i don't say it blame them but the association of the world of performance was there was a kind of destructive power to it it was very powerful but the power was not entirely you know productive it was kind of destructive and i think that novel captures that destructive power the boy grows up with a destructive relationship with the art form of theater and some very scary things happen through this destructive obsession with theater i mean of course that is all fictitious that is not true in my case but there was a seed of some sort of a dark fascination with theater that i think of my early years Okay, so you turned to books, and then when did you start to write fiction? 
I've been writing, I've been dabbling. I think I, uh, seriously, it would be in high school, grade 11, 12, uh, and then first year in college. And one of my professors was Indian poet P. Lal, who also ran the publishing house, a small publishing house, writer's workshop uh, in Calcutta. And I showed him some of my stories and he was very taken by them. Mm-hmm. And he brought out a couple of collections. They were more like chapbooks. Mm-hmm. But there were um, a couple of collections of my short stories were published when I was in college. So I think fairly early on, I felt, and I also started freelancing for newspapers. I think a big decision was whether I would write in English or Bengali. I think till class uh, grade 10, I was writing in both languages. But I think in many ways, and this also goes back to my traumatic family life. I was I was looking for any opportunity to escape the familiar milieu. And since the familiar milieu was in Bengali, I was looking for kind of spreading out. And I think English offered me a sense that I can get out of this. And eventually I felt like leave the city, you know, leave this place, leave this country. And I left and I obviously, you know, spent 17 years in North America before coming back. But in many ways, that choice of English was also another act of safety that I'm moving away. And then I started writing in English. And when I started getting published in English, I guess this was in college. That's when I made up my mind to go, go for an MFA. So after my college, I went to, came to the US to do a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. So that's kind of the trajectory that I followed. <laughs> yeah. So in America, a lot of fiction writers will, very few are able to make their living solely through their writings. And a lot of them do end up teaching at universities in creative writing programs. And I notice you do that as well. How common is that in India to be able to teach in a creative writing program? Actually, not common at all. I mean, I don't think we have. I, I might have set up what is India's first university-based creative writing. Oh, wow. At least granting creative writing department. It's very, very rare. It's a very new thing. English departments are, of course, very old. I think some research shows that English depart- English as an academic subject actually started in India, in British colonial. So that is very old. But um, creative writing is very new. And I, my appointment, I have two appointments. I have an, Half my appointment is in creative writing with the department I headed you know, for six years now, I'm going on a sabbatical, my seventh year of sabbatical happily. And the other half is because I also have a PhD in literature. I also have an academic appointment in the literature department. So I teach both. Uh, pure creative writing appointments are quite rare. Simply because this is a very American idea. I don't think creative writing programs are very popular outside America. I mean, even in England, they're relatively new. Yeah. In Australia, other places. And um, here... I think it's very interesting, and I've written about this as well. It's like, you know, there's a great interest and great thirst in creative writing, not just in the university, but in the community, literary festivals, publishers, they're organizing these creative writing workshops, bookshops, I've done sessions in bookshops. Uh, But as a university degree, it is um, uh, almost unheard of. It's now starting out. So for writers, this was not really an option. Yeah. You know, in terms of the way it happens in the US, the writers kind of, especially poets. For poets, I think it's even more important. You know, fiction writers still have some income, but literary fiction is almost the same. Uh, and um, I, I, it's not common at all. But uh, we are hoping that English, unlike I think in the US and the UK, English is actually quite popular in India. And there are all kinds of reasons behind it, including its colonial prestige. But creative writing is a kind of a rising subject. And I think it's going to rise. And I think there'll be more opportunities. But as of now, this is not common at all. We do get writers come and teach for a semester, people who don't want to be here long term. And there are four or five of us who are here in the long long term. Um, mostly, it's quite uncommon, quite rare. But hopefully, that will change. So are your students mostly uh, in their late teens and early 20s? 
Yeah, so the undergraduate program, uh, we have a BA in English and a BA, BA major in English and a BA minor in creative writing. I, I always felt that creative writing should be a minor. You should have a real academic subject, you know, whether it's literature <laughs> or physics or economics. You should not just have a major. So there's a minor and there's a joint BA in English and creative writing. And then there's an MA in English with a creative writing track. Right. Uh, our these uh, entirely in literary studies, so we don't offer a PhD in creative writing as such. So yeah, the most of the students in undergraduate uh, would be eighteen to twenty-one, uh, unless they are sort of non-traditional students. And uh, the MA, if there's an MA student who's doing this, would be yeah, in the early to mid twenties. So that's the What do they come in wanting to write, or what what have they grown up reading? Yeah, see, that's very interesting. I think I, I, I think this is a generation of readers who I find them generally, and I think this is something which I think most people around the world are saying, they're much less well-read than we were. And that could be because maybe we had a more unified canon. Now, canon is so scattered. It's so one thing I see is that their reading is uh, very much driven to speculative uh, science fiction. That's a big thing. I think they grew up, um, obviously, with Harry Potter and all that, and then, yeah. you know, with Netflix and watching all that. So there's a great interest in that. I notice more men interested in that. Women, I think, really, there's a gender division, too. Women are more, sometimes write more about everyday life, but men have a more of an interest. So I think they, they haven't read much. But the great thing is that we do have, when directed to interesting books, they turn out to be great readers. We are very lucky. Our students are actually quite amazing because this is, already established itself as one of the most kind of desirable selective universities and we do get some very good students and Indian students are very hard working you know they this whole middle class ethos of studies are important and all that and they come from fairly rigorous if slightly stodgy boring curriculum but they're very serious and they pick up but if you really ask me what they've read I I'd be surprised that they haven't read many books we would have considered essential while we were in college. Yeah. Uh, but you know, again, once you introduce them, they read the pick pretty fast. Right. So, but I think even when they write, there's this tendency of alternative reality. And I tell them, you know, that's all great. But, you know, if you look outside on an Indian street, the fascinating epic of life, you, you can't <laughs> right. reality. The Indian family is right. epic. Write about all that. Don't just, and I think the pandemic hasn't helped. The pandemic has obviously made people more, you know, towards the hyper-real and surreal and kind of people haven't been able to get out much. So, but I think that that's that's an ongoing conversation I have with my students because I'm not that interested in the speculative myself. I think that reality is much more fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, tell us about the middle finger because you have a very interesting background that gives you uh, a perspective that I think is, is probably unusual in that you've spent so much time at universities in North America and now you're at a university in India and it sounds like the middle finger kind of straddles those two worlds. Yeah, yeah, actually, I mean, I think I'm the kind of writer who, even when I make up stories, I need the places to be real. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm a very atmospheric writer. The place is very important to me. I also enjoy reading work, which is very rooted in place. And I need the places to be real. So the middle finger are quite real. So the places I've been are kind of show up. Um, I think it's quite different. It's a departure in my career as a novel or a novelist because I think my novels so far, say the Firebird Playhouse or the Scent of God, they were kind of went back to the world of childhood and adolescence and some kind of a primitive, kind of very bare experience, very, very rooted experience, something that I experienced. And then I 
pull it out with a middle finger i was actually driven by this mythical story from the mahabharata i don't know if you're familiar with it there's a story about a great teacher of archery dronacharya and he used to teach princes and one day a tribal warrior a warrior much prince came up a tribal prince much lower in social status asking to be trained and he said that i can't train you because you're not a prince you're not of the same caste or class so you know you don't deserve my training and this is something that has been in my head for a long time because yeah. i've seen this in the us in terms of race like who gets access to education what does it mean to go to a college like stanford or princeton and i think in india it happens to caste like who gets who has the right to be educated and along with that was this whole story of plato's symposium where plato is jokingly talking about oh come and lie down next to me agathon and knowledge will travel between us so this whole question of intimacy and i think this is a whole thing that also exploded after the campus me to movement like you know what is the limits of relationship between the teacher and i think i wanted to write a novel where dronacharya takes a side with ekalavya the prince whom he rejected mm. and even gets drawn to to this character so i wanted to write a contemporary campus novel retelling this myth and i think in the middle finger you know obviously the story is there's this by the indologist wendy doniger comes up with a new version of the story where you know dronacharya is not the one to turn him down it's actually dronacharya's favorite student arjun who cheats him and says that you must chop off your thumb as an act of tribute mm. to your guru and when you chop off your thumb you can't shoot arrows anymore you become basically defunct and then the myth goes that dronacharya should have given ekalavya the boon that or oh, the bheel the tribal warrior can shoot arrows even with his index and middle finger so the title comes from that boon the middle finger shooting arrows and i wanted to write a contemporary campus novel which plays out these themes the question of access to education when somebody who feels so far out of your social pale comes and claims to learn from you what does a dronacharya do you know what does you do when you are a you know in a city you know some um, student um minority student going to an elite university in the US what do you do when you're a lower caste student going up to a elite university in India so those are the questions which drove me and i um and i in my novel i made dronacharya a woman and ekalavya is also a woman and i think it ended up starting as a retelling of this myth but i'm not a very myth driven writer i'm too committed to contemporary reality so the characters took their own life and they went in their own directions but that's how it started Yeah. Well, it sounds like with your background in studying modernism, the use of myth as kind of a platform or a springboard to a contemporary novel would fit right in. Yes, yes. Of course, Ulysses, you know, yeah. <laughs> goes to Ulysses. <laughs> there. But I, it was a surprise. I never thought I'd do something like this, but in a way I and I and I felt it's something so relevant to all our lives. I think all of us who teach must have faced people who felt out of place in a in an elite classroom and how do you reach out to them what do you tell them when they speak a radically different language when they don't have access to the same kinds of especially when you teach literature when you teach english literature in a country like india where which is out of many people's you know cultural baggage and yet you meet people who want to learn english is such a vehicle of upward mobility in india and uh, what do you do so those questions were really important and i think they came crowding out in this novel i used to tell this joke that when people were looking to hire other people and they get a resume that's uh, one page that they should flip it over and just on the other side just have a mirror because everybody 
who looks to hire is looking to hire some version of themselves or they feel comfortable with some version of themselves and teaching oh. teaching seems like it's kind of like that as well that when you recognize oh this is a younger version of me i was like this i was like this person whether that's uh because of gender or race or background or personality or you know someone who loves reading and loves all the books that you loved when you were that age or something it feels comfortable you feel like i know how i can get through to this person i know i can say things that will help and when you get further away from that you feel like well now i'm not sure what I can do as a teacher because I'm on less certain ground. I can't draw on my own experience. Is that something you've found as a teacher? Absolutely. That's, that's an amazing observation. I completely agree with you. That's a brilliant observation. I think that's also why I, we see, I saw in the U.S., uh, minority faculty members were increasingly asked to mentor you know, students from their workplace. Because, I mean, if, especially if you're a background where there aren't too many academies of people even in colleges, you need to have a role model who looks and sounds like you. And uh, I think I felt that, I mean, obviously, that's one of the attractions of teaching in India is that I see more people who are actually like me when I was there. But even then, you know, I had a, I did receive a very good education. I grew up in a major metro city. Um, and when you're teaching something like English, it's so easy to teach somebody who sounds like you, who speaks English the way you do. Mm-hmm. I've read a certain kind of books. You know that they've read these books, your references, they will get it. But once in a while, you do meet a student who uh, really doesn't, is not comfortable in, in, in English. You know, they speak English very differently, and yet they have a fiery passion for literature. Maybe yeah. they're well-read in a vernacular literature. Maybe they're read in a different, maybe they're read in Hindi, Bengali, Urdu, anything. And then I think it's really exciting. I've come to deal with this, that how does one, and this is, again, goes back to the life of the Indian writer in English or any post-colonial writer in English who's, writing about reality which is not lived in english you know you we are always translating we are always you know dialogues reality culture and in that sense i think meeting a student like that is kind of a rude jolt that i have to come out of my comfort zone so you're absolutely right but it is hard work yeah but i think it's totally worth doing exactly yeah yeah the payoff is greater or it, you know it's it can be incredible and it can be good for the teacher and the student when those boundaries are crossed but it it takes a lot of effort and it it takes teachers out of their comfort zone sometimes okay so let's take a quick break and come back and talk about D.H. Lawrence and where later Chatterley's lover fits into this. I feel like the themes are all teed up for us to have a good discussion of this novel. Absolutely. Looking forward to that. Okay, we are back. We are on the verge of talking about Lady Chatterley's Lover. I was a little surprised when you chose this book, and now I am not surprised at all after talking to you. But where? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just I thought, oh, you know, that's interesting. I I didn't know where you would have encountered it, or what stage of life you would have read it, or a lot of people don't read D. H. Lawrence anymore, and he's, um, you know, but. 
now I see how the themes fit right in with a lot of the things that you're concerned with. So where were you in life when you discovered Lady Chatterley's Lover? Was this part of your study in modernism and in the PhD program or before or after? No, no, actually not. I mean, as you said, you know, it's strange how people don't read Lawrence anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's also my experience. Obviously, you grow up, anybody who studies English literature knows of Lawrence. And I think one of his short stories, I'm forgetting which one in our reader, yeah. it's, I, I got seriously into, I think with modernism, what happens, even the Lawrence was in uh, Lewis's great tradition. I think for the last 40, 50 years, he's kind of fallen out of the picture. And this is my, this is my, my diagnosis of why that has happened is because Lawrence doesn't offer the typical modernist sense of craft. Modernism offers a certain notion of craft, which, and again, for me, modernism was always, uh, the reason I came a modernist, I'm reading Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, is like you make yourself as a writer and you, especially after coming out of Victorian fiction, which is kind of you know, obviously very enjoyable, but very plot-driven, very biographical. Oh my God, you can do all this stuff. You can break rules. And then you're drawn to the writers to do it on the most obvious level, on the syntactical level. Right. That is Virginia Woolf, and most you know, representative manner is James Joyce. James Joyce, right. And my modernist was, modernism was primarily driven by Joyce with an aspiration for a certain kind of a craft, a certain kind of writerly bildung. You know, portrait of an artist is very, you know, sort of typical that way, you know, even right from Dublin then, you know, through, through Ulysses and Fingenswick is going in a different direction. But I was a committed Joycean. I am not actually a Lawrence scholar at all. In fact, I wouldn't have anything scholarly to say about this book. I mean, I, I my first book, my first monograph, Rose of the World, Modernism and the Banality of Empire, has a chapter on James Joyce. But I don't think I encountered Lawrence in any scholarly context. I don't remember exactly, but I the book I have here is, is a pretty old, tattered copy. I think I it came to me... Um, through some old book sale somewhere. I don't even remember in the US or here or somewhere. But um, it was kind of an accident. I think I, obviously, the, I when obviously I read, I mean, I loved some of his poetry, but the first novel I read was Sons and Lovers, which is still similar to the modernist building. So in fact, it mm-hmm. is a modernist building. It's considered. It is often mentioned in the same breath as Portrait of an Artist. And that is a novel which you, you can see, even though Paul Morel is, not really, I mean, if he paints, but he doesn't want to be a writer. I mean, Stephen Dedalus is much more of a writer than Paul Morel. But then, um, and, and this is one of his last novels. It might actually be the very last time, remember. And then I came across it. And no, it was um, not at all. It was almost accidental. But it's just, Lawrence is just one of those writers you keep hearing about, and yet you don't actually read much. You're absolutely right um, that he's not read. I'd love to know why you think people don't read him. Lawrence. Well, you might be onto something there where it it is a kind of, if you're going to read something from that era, there is a kind of pleasure that people and scholars will take and academic minded people in saying, oh, I can read this and I can I can be smart about the form and the way that Virginia Woolf is playing with the the nature of fiction and and it kind of or James Joyce and it kind of makes writers even writers who were writing at the time like Henry James or E.M. Forster who were not going quite in that far of a direction seem a little bit outdated and seem a little bit out of step with their time because Virginia Woolf and Proust and Joyce are so 
avant-garde. So I think that might be part of it in the Academy. I also think Lawrence kind of suffers from people feel like he can be a little bit hectoring and, and a little <laughs> a little bit uh, demanding for people who are trying to push back, especially on his, some of his notions of, of women and uh, some of his feelings about sex and kind of some of his positions have put him where you have to kind of read it with a, a grain of salt, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I think that uh, Lawrence has run into a lot of problems with feminists mm-hmm. for good reasons. So I think he offers immense material for gender theories. There's so much there, but often it's disturbing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think for, for again, for me, because modernism was always to the writerly lens, the more writer I can learn from, yeah. Lawrence never was present to me as a writer one could learn from. Uh, but I now feel I learned so much from him as a writer. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> what is it that you're learning? Well, you know, the first thing is, you know, another friend of mine, another writer, writer friend of mine, Amit Chaudhary, often says he's a great reader of Lawrence Moore's poetry. Is that Lawrence has Lawrence's writing is not well crafted in the sense Joyce's is. Mm. It is very uneven. Yeah. Uh, there are these moments of eruption of almost bad writing, bad passages almost kind of a gothic eruption. And then I realized that this is also something I've realized while reading uh, some Indian writers in translation that, you know, that my own training in craft was very enlightenment-driven, very romantic, very new critical model of excellent craft. And then while reading these other writers, I felt a kind of a jolt that my sense of craft was too limited. And Lawrence is a, it's a Western writer actually gives me the same kind of feeling where my sense of craft is expanded. You know, one example I'll give you is you know, one thing we keep hearing a lot in creative writing programs is that show don't tell. And I think that is uh, what that really, I understand that to mean is that the contemporary or rather the modern, I mean, from the 19th century onwards, I mean, certainly the 20th century imagination of fiction has been very cinematic. It's it's more intimate, more minute, whereas kind of a pre-modern imagination of a story was but a far bigger sweep of time. I think the biggest difference between a oral story and the modern uh, short story is that oral tale is that an oral tale could capture 5,000 years. Whereas the modern short story is obviously check up saying, oh, put your cigarette down the ashtray, I'll write a story about it. That kind of minute, banal, cinematic imagination. And when we say show, we are basically saying that oh, go into the, give us the texture. Don't say she was angry, say that, or if you throw a glass on the wall. And, but I realized that something like Lawrence actually does telling very well. He does, he also explains things. You know, what, I think what you said when you said hectoring, I, mean, yeah. I think that, that's an interesting <laughs> choice of word. That is hectoring. Yeah, he, he goes on and on, he analyzes things and it's quite amazing how well he, he pulls pulls it off. So I think this kind of long range narration, I'm trying to find a passage. I'll just read a little uh, passage. I uh, I kept a couple here. But you know, the point is that it's not, I mean, he has plenty of intimate scenes too. Of course he does. But he also tells, he also explains things. There's almost argumentative explanation. Right. And he goes over analytic passages. And I'm quite surprised how well he pulls it off. It's almost like he's breaking the rule of show versus tell. Yeah. He's actually telling and he's doing it beautifully. So I, I think, and in that sense, I find him a very different kind of a writer. I mean, I think I can't always make sense of some of the novels he wrote in between, like Women and um, Women in Love and Rainbow. But this novel, okay, I found a little passage I wanted to read. Okay. Uh, so this is um, about first, third, then. 
this is Connie's thinking of Mellers, the gamekeeper. But perhaps that was better. And after all, he was kind to the female in her, which no man had ever been. Men were very kind to the person she was, but rather cruel to the female, despising her or ignoring her altogether. Men were awfully kind to Constance Reed or to Lady Chatterley, but not to her not to her womb they were they were in kind. And he took he took no notice of Constance or Lady Chatterley. He just softly stroked her loins or her breasts. So there's this intimacy, this physical detail in the last part, but other than that, he's, he's seeing something very abstract. Yeah. You know, we, we grow up with the notion that a novelist should not be abstract, a novelist should be concrete. Right, right. Lawrence is abstract all the time. And it's amazing how he makes the abstraction become concrete. We actually convince, we actually see what he's trying to see. And that was a kind of a, it's almost like this guy doesn't care about all these rules about creative writing, we were told. Right. And it's so amazing. So that really struck me about him, you know. Well, that is Lawrence's great strength, I think. And it, it can be exhausting. And I used the word hectoring. And he's not coming out of that Flaubert tradition of let's make everything visible and let's convey all the emotion through, you know, the physical description and the gestures and the facial expressions and so on. But he is so intense and he has such a, a self-confidence and such a desire to express what he's trying to express that it can be, in fact, and you feel the intensity as you're going along. If you give yourselves over to Lawrence, he will carry you with his, you know, that he, he's relentless in what he wants to convey. Yes, relentless is a very good word. He's very intense. I mean, of course, there are great scenes too. There's a scene, of course, when Connie and Mellors first get intimate. It's like she's looking at the chicks, you know, and then I think a teardrop falls on um, Mellers' hand. She's he's standing close by. And that's the time when he pulls her to, to him. So there are these great scenes. But, you know, there are, I mean, if you will indulge me one more time, I want to read another passage where, you know, he and, what's his name? Um, Lord Chatterley, I'm forgetting his name. Clifford, Clifford, they're together. So they're uh, pushing Clifford over the veil. At the top of the hill, they rested. And Connie was glad to let go. She had the fugitive dreams of friendship between these two men, one her husband, the other the father of a child. Now she saw the screaming absurdity of her dreams. The two males were as hostile as fire and water. They mutually exterminated one another. And she realized for the first time what a queer, subtle thing hate is. For the first time, she had consciously and definitely hated Clifford with vivid hate as if he might be obliterated from the face of the earth. And it was strange how free and full of life it made her feel to hate him and to admit it fully to herself. Now I've hated him. I shall never be able to go on living with him, came the thoughts into her mind. And again, this is, she's explaining that she's hating. It's her mind. And of course, it jumps from point of view to point of view. There's no regard and yeah. it's just amazing. But it's so convincing. I was just yeah. going to say, if a novelist today was inclined to do that, they would probably use first person. Yes, 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 exactly. And yet, a first person would limit you to one consciousness. Here, you, you're in Connie's mind uh, for most of the time. You're also in Mellers' mind. You're not really in Clifford's mind, but you're definitely in Mellers' mind. And you move from the same section within without a section break. And I felt that this is a liberation from everything I've been taught. And I think the older you grow, you know, the more you write, you realize that 
you know, there's so many ways, you know, craft is such a limited word, you know, it's like, and Lawrence is giving me, and it's not that, I mean, of course, at the end of the day, Lawrence is a very physical writer, of course, he's a very physical writer, he's a very, you know, very intense writer, I mean, there's this one paragraph uh, that really stuck out, when Kani's looking at legs, when he's traveling, Kani woke up to the existence of legs, they became more important to her than faces, which are no longer very real. How few people had legs? live nice legs she looked at the men in the stall great puddingy thighs in black pudding cloth or lean wooden sticks in black funeral stuff or well-shaped young legs without any meaning whatever either sensuality or tenderness or sensitiveness just mere leggy ordinariness that pranced around most often any sensuality like her father's they were all damned, daunted out of existence. I mean, it's very sensory, but it's very strange. You know, he's very bodily. But at the same time, he just moves into the abstract. And I think that is something that I really loved in Lawrence, that he's, he can do this and get away and give us such a powerful experience. Now, let me close with this question. We'll come full circle here. You described your act of writing as coming from a place of shyness and wanting to retreat from the idea of performance. Do you think a writer like Lawrence, certainly he was very egotistical and and he might be a, a special case, but do you think a writer like Lawrence, who goes from consciousness to consciousness in such a way, do you think of that as being kind of a retreat in a way? Or do you think of that as putting the writer first and most prominent in the role of kind of a, a godlike figure? You know, Lawrence is a very complex figure, and I I think one needs um, more scholarly understanding. I mean, I know that um, you know he had a lot of thoughts about sex. And of course, one of the other things I love about Lawrence is, I mean, very few writers write about sex and intimacy the way he does. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, he takes the body and he makes the body a spiritual thing, even as he's thinking about the erotic act of love making or sex. But somehow you feel that transcends the physical, and yet. It, the transcendence is in the very immanence. It's almost like it doesn't want to leave the body, but in that very act of staying in the body, it becomes more than the body. So it's absolutely paradoxical. Uh, I think he obviously was also very experimental and very radical in other ways and less than obvious ways. And this has to do with obviously, you know, his thoughts on sex, sexuality, and obviously through his wife, he must have taken a lot of German ideas, Freudian ideas about sex. And I, again, because I'm not a Lawrence scholar, I don't know much about that, what happened. And of course, there was a lot of very destructive ideas about, you know, kind of Nietzschean notions. And a lot of the modernists are getting caught in this idea of elitism, exceptionalism. And Nazism was not always very far from these lines of thought with, obviously, with someone like Lyndon Lewis and Ezra Pound, you get pretty close. And I've heard that Lawrence is also hard to defend sometimes on those fronts. So on the other hand, he is talking about this life of miners is coal miners and that's again that draws me to Lawrence because he's so rooted to a place the coal mines are such vibrant places such tangible places I, just like Joyce's Dublin in this they're similar the evocation of a local place so I, I, I don't really know I mean clearly in a sense his talk I mean who is Mellors Mellors is an ordinary man he's not exactly working class he he had a shot of becoming middle class he lets go and yet he is you know, he's this paradoxical person. He he drops into this Yorkshire, in a Derby dialect when he can speak perfectly sort of more normal English, but he does it as a act of defiance. So I don't know. I mean, I think 
I think if you dig deep into Lawrence, there are a lot of things which are quite disturbing, mm. you know, and that's also probably part of the reason why he's fallen out of favor. I think it's easier to redeem someone like Joyce as the kind of Irish colonial writer uh, or Wolf as a feminist writer. But I think with Lawrence, it's much more complicated. You can't always. Um, and I think we've sort of been through this whole phase in you know, literature and certainly academy is full of it that if a writer is politically disturbing, then you kind of drop them in a way. Uh-huh. I and mean, of course, we don't do that with Elliot. Elliot is politically very disturbing and Elliot is absolutely at the top of the canon. So I, I think there's a lot of things that would come to the surface which are very disturbing. I'm just happy to read him as a writer and learn to write about intimacy and the body and as writing about breaking all these rules about writing. You know, it's almost like he doesn't care. There's something wild about him. That yeah. is very attractive and dangerous. Okay, yeah. well, let's leave things there. Shoykat Manjumdar, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation. I I learned as much as I. I was, <laughs> thank you for having me. I look forward to hearing more of your podcast in the future. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Saikat Majumdar for joining me today. What a fun experience that was. Growing up in the shadow of scandal. Hmm. Is that your story too, dear listener? Mine is kind of the opposite, though I suppose every child has some obstacles that their parents put up, whether they mean to or not. We are rolling into October with a lot of great episodes in the works. As you know, this is my favorite month of the year, and why not be generous when you're in a good mood? Lewis Carroll should be next, so please do subscribe to the show and tell all your friends. And while you're subscribing, maybe hit the little five-star button to help us out if you're in the mood. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.